Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer here at HowStuffWorks. And yes, before I get into it, I still have a cold. I'm still dealing with allergies. In fact, uh, I'm recording an episode right after I just recorded another episode. So you get the not at 100% Jonathan's voice version of Jonathan today. I apologize for that. But today I've got a subject that I'm really excited to talk about. Now, I've done episodes in the past about electric bikes, but a listener recently pointed out that I not yet actually discussed the bicycle itself. And so today we're going to take a look at the bicycle. We're going to take off the training wheels and we're going to look at this evolution and probably make some queen references. We'll see how it goes. But yes, I like to ride my bicycle. I like to ride my bike. So where did the bicycle come from? We're going to really focus on that today. We're looking at the birth and evolution of the bicycle as opposed to the latest and greatest in bikes. I'll do another episode about that later on. Well, as is the case with many inventions, the answer of where the bicycle came from is not really that simple an answer. The bicycle evolved from a series of different inventions And it would be disingenuous to point to a specific person as the inventor of the bicycle. Now, I should start all of this by talking about the earliest evidence of wheeled vehicles in general. But I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it because, come on, you don't need a 14 series episode about the invention and (laughs) modernization of the wheel. But the actual wheel dates back to at least 3500 BCE in both Asia and Europe. And going into more detail would be a bit much even for me. The early wheeled vehicles used four wheels for the most part. That's not a surprise as it provides a stable base. Historians discovered a few early two-wheeled vehicles dating from around that same time. But these were carts and the wheels were aligned side by side as opposed to front and back like a bicycle. Skipping ahead thousands of years, let's talk about Giovanni Fontana. He was known as not just a 15th century doctor of medicine, but also an engineer and even, in some circles, a magician. Though he was using a proto-form of the scientific method to get results and didn't necessarily present his work as that of a magical nature. He was replicating what magicians claimed they could do using scientific principles and saying, doesn't it make more sense that it's done this way? Well, in 1425, he published a manuscript that detailed a self-driving carriage. By that, he did not mean an autonomous car, though that would have been incredibly forward thinking back in the 1400s. Rather, he had suggested a vehicle that would be propelled by the people inside the vehicle itself. Up to that point, land vehicles had to be pulled by animals or other human beings. Fontana suggested that a hand-powered vehicle could allow for a new method of getting from place to place. His proposal included a brief description of a carriage that used ropes and cogs to transform power from a rider, or transfer power, I should say, from a rider to the wheels of the vehicle. So imagine sort of a a loop of rope wrapped around cogs like they're pulleys. And if you pull on the rope, you transfer the energy needed to rotate the wheels of the carriage itself. But that's about all the details we have for this proposed device. If Fontana actually ever tried to build one of these things, it was lost to time. And on a tangential note, before I trans 
far away from Fontana. I have to also mention that he proposed a sort of proto-rocket car that would be fueled by gunpowder. Now, I mention that only because I love how crazy that sounds. I don't think he ever made one of those either, because there are no reports of Fontana having to be dug out of the side of a mountain. A French mathematician ended up laying out the argument for human-powered vehicles in a 1696 manuscript titled Recreations Mathematiques et Physiques, because it's French. He hypothesized that uh, such conveyances would be much more readily available to the general population because you wouldn't have to care for an animal. You wouldn't have to have the space to keep a horse. And you wouldn't have to feed it. Uh, plus, you could even get some exercise and some fresh air using such a vehicle. However, this was just sort of a armchair philosophizing kind of approach. He didn't actually build anything. There is an interesting story about a sketch that was attributed to Leonardo da Vinci. And supposedly that sketch dated back to 1493. And not only was it a sketch of what looked like a bicycle, it even had pedals. Like it was... It was pretty much a modern style bike, uh, in a, in a sketch format. It's, it's undeniably that sort of thing, but it is a somewhat crude design. Uh, the sketch had remained undiscovered, and I say that in air quotes, until 1974. So it was attributed to 1493, but it wasn't uncovered until 1974. That was when there was an art restoration project. Experts were working on Da Vinci's Codex Atlanticus. And supposedly this particular design was part of that and just had not been seen for centuries. Historians debated the legitimacy of this sketch, and the general consensus is that it's hokum. Here's the weird thing. This is not the only example of false attribution to the bicycle's evolution. Another sketch, this one supposedly dating to 1534 and made by one of da Vinci's pupils, also appears to be a fraud. So what was going on? There are these crazy fake sketches claiming to be the proto-design of the bicycle centuries before it was ever really introduced. Well, to understand, we need to take a quick detour, and then I'll get back to the actual timeline of the bicycle's invention. But I think this is pretty fascinating. So in the early 20th century, European nations were becoming increasingly isolated and jingoistic. It became a point of national pride to champion the various advancements and inventions each country could lay claim to. I think of it a lot like the way we treat the Olympics at times, how some people will reduce the Olympics to a discussion of, our country took home 12 gold medals and your country only took home eight. It's sort of a one-upsmanship tendency, which I think is pretty darn tacky because it takes attention away from the actual accomplishments, but that's just my own opinion. While as tensions in Europe built toward World War I, more nations were getting involved in kind of this one-upsmanship. They were scrambling to prove that they were the seat of ingenuity and innovation. And sometimes it meant that some rather, um, uh, let's say, creative but undaunted by ethics sorts of people would fabricate evidence that clever inventions came from their respective homelands. Historians suspected that the alleged Da Vinci sketch is one of those examples. It was a forgery intended to give the honor of creating the bicycle to Italians rather than to, say, the Germans. 
spoiler alert, most historians agree that the bicycle really got started in Germany first. Another bogus claim to the invention of the bicycle dates to 1791 and a fellow known as Comte de Sivrac. Uh, though it may be that this bogus claim was arrived at honestly by mistake, as opposed to a hoax perpetuated by someone. The good count allegedly developed a vehicle called the Celere Affair, which by a 19th century historian's description sounded a lot like the basic frame of a bicycle. According to the description, it had two wheels, one set in front of the other. It did not have any pedals or brakes or handlebars. It was essentially a frame with a, a saddle on it, a leather seat. And you would sit on the saddle and you would propel yourself with your feet pushing against the ground and you would steer yourself by leaning left or right. And that's as best as you could do. As it turns out, there were vehicles sort of like this, but they were all three- or four-wheeled vehicles, not two-wheeled vehicles. Uh, many people, particularly French people, adopted the belief that a Frenchman had come up with the idea for a bicycle, but it appears that was not quite the case. It may well have been an error in translation or uh, transcription. Now, I prefer stories that actually have evidence to support them, and I am inclined to give the nod of the invention of the bicycle, or at least uh, the invention of a device that would evolve into the bicycle to a certain Baron Karl von Dreis in 1817. He was concerned with finding a way for people to get around due to recent unfortunate events. See, in 1815, a couple years earlier, there was a volcano in Indonesia called Mount Tambora, and it done blowed up. The volcano ejected an enormous cloud of ash into the atmosphere. Now, that ash cloud had a global effect. It lowered temperatures across the world. It was kind of like a nuclear winter, except, of course, this is a volcanic one. This, in turn, led to massive crop failures in certain regions around the world, like in Europe. And that led to other problems, such as animals like horses dying of starvation. So there was a shortage of horses in Europe at the time. Dreis wanted to invent a means of getting around quickly, despite this lack of horses. The good baron came up with a novel idea, assuming that the previous examples I mentioned were, in fact, hoaxes and not just poorly recorded history. It was, again, a two-wheeled vehicle with one wheel set in front of the other. It had a padded saddle to sit upon and a set of handlebars for steering. Uh, there were no pedals and only a single wheel brake. So again, and for real, the rider would push him or herself along the ground with his or her feet. Let's be honest, it was mostly hims and he's that we're talking about because there were lots of laws about what women could and could not wear, and most of those were not conducive to riding a vehicle of this design. So what was this thing called? Well, it actually had several names. Dreis called it the Laufsmaschine which means running machine. You gotta love the German language, in which new words are invented by just stringing existing words together, and you just end up with a very long new word. According to the sources I referenced, he used this name originally for a, a four-wheeled vehicle of his design, but he later adapted the same name to the two-wheeled model. It was uh, known in English as the Dreisine, or Dreisine, D-R-A-I-S-I-N-E, in French, it was the Draisen. Uh, oh, and it was also called a Velocipede. And a Velocipede would become a generic term for these sort of two-wheeled vehicles for many, many years. Uh, in England, it was also sometimes called a hobby horse or, and this is my favorite, a dandy horse because they were expensive. 
So typically only really rich people in nice clothing were striding along with these suckers. The word velocipede would be used for many such vehicles for decades until the term bicycle came around. Now, people liked these when they could ride them on nice, smooth surfaces because a push with your foot would propel you much further than just if you were to take a regular step. So you'd travel more ground faster than normal. So you wouldn't be going at ridiculous speeds, but you could certainly get across a, a sidewalk area much faster than if you were just strolling. And it had a certain appeal. Dreis's invention was a hefty one. It was made out of wood and brass and iron-shod wheels, plus that leather saddle. The whole thing weighed around 50 pounds or 23 kilograms. For a few years, his invention was all the rage in Europe. Over in England, a coachmaker named Dennis Johnson began to market his own variation of Dreis's invention, and it inspired a few seasons of vigorous sporting events among the aristocracy of London, but turned out to mostly just be a fad, and excitement died down by the 1820s. So why did it go out of style so quickly? Well, it might have had something to do with riding conditions. The vehicles worked best on smooth, paved surfaces. Now, most roads in Europe did not fit that description. They were a cobblestone, if you were lucky. But sidewalks were frequently very smooth. So velocipede riders would stick to sidewalks, and they would terrorize pedestrians. This might sound pretty familiar if you're a pedestrian out there, and I'm sure you've got your own story uh, or stories of crazed bicyclists barreling down pedestrian walkways. Anyway, many places ended up passing laws that would forbid velocipede riders to go on sidewalks. And since they were incredibly uncomfortable to ride on rutted roads or cobblestone streets, they faded from common use. Meanwhile, across the pond, the early invention had debuted in the United States. There was a man named W.K. Clarkson Jr. who received a patent for a velocipede in 1819. And I would love to tell you more about his invention, but sadly, all records of that particular patent were destroyed in 1836 in a fire at the U.S. Patent Office. And I may have to do an episode one day about that particular event because it definitely had a major impact on uh, innovation and invention at the early 19th century in the United States. Next, we come to another possible hoax or at least uh, potential misinformation. There's a story that a Scottish blacksmith named Kirkpatrick Macmillan came up with the idea of attaching pedals to a bicycle in 1839, which would be decades before anyone else had thought of this. Now, these pedals didn't turn gears that were connected by a chain, the way a modern bicycle does. Uh, according to the story, they were treadle-style pedals. So they were connecting to rods that were in a position so that they, in turn, would rotate the rear wheel. So solid rods as opposed to a chain drive. Uh, you can kind of think of the way a locomotive uses these sort of rods to turn wheels. If you've ever seen pictures of that, same sort of idea for these particular bikes. The front wheel was steerable, so you had to have that be freely turnable left or right. That's why it was a rear wheel drive. But some historians are skeptical of this account. The stories of Macmillan's work were first publicized in the 1890s, and they came from a guy named James Johnston, who, as it turns out, was related to Macmillan. There is an account from an 1842 edition of a newspaper in Glasgow of a minor accident involving a, quote, velocipede of ingenious design, end quote. And Johnston says that article is all about Macmillan. 
But since there's no actual mention of Macmillan's name in the article, nor a description of how the Velocipede design was ingenious, the matter is not quite settled. In fact, one bit of evidence arguing against this claim is that the article referred to the operator of the Velocipede as a gentleman. Macmillan, who was a tradesman, would not have qualified for that distinction in the extremely class-conscious United Kingdom. So it may well be that Macmillan was the first to attach pedals to a two-wheeled vehicle in this manner, but we just lack the evidence. There's a similar story that tells the tale of Gavin Dalzell of Les Mahago, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing because you get to these tiny English names and Scottish names and you get 14 syllables when it's written out, but you realize that when you pronounce it, it's Fanshawe. Anyway, Dalzell was a cooper in the 1840s. That means he's, he made barrels. He's a barrel maker. And he was said to have made a rear-drive bicycle in 1845, based off of Macmillan's design, though again, this is undocumented. Now, his son would go on to donate one of Dalzell's bikes to the Glasgow Transport Museum, but that happened several years later. In 1863, a French design changed the way people got around on these two-wheeled vehicles. Another entry into the Velocipede category, this design had pedals mounted to the hub of the front wheel. So there was no chain drive or anything like that. The pedals were literally attached to the wheel hub. Pedaling would drive the front wheel and provide the power needed to move forward. It was a bit of a challenge to operate, and on top of that, most models were made of unyielding materials and had steel wheels or ironclad wheels. So if you were to ride one of those on, say, a cobblestone street, you'd be in for a pretty rough ride. As a result, those sort of vehicles gained a nickname, Bone Shakers. Some large cities began to build special indoor riding academies where well-to-do Velocipede owners could come together and ride without worrying about shaking themselves to pieces. And it was right around this time that the word bicycle began to enter the common lexicon, slowly replacing Velocipede and other names for two-wheeled human-powered vehicles. Now, I've got a lot more to say about the evolution of bicycles, but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. The first documented rod-driven two-wheeled vehicle might not be the first one ever, but the first one that's documented dates to 1869. Thomas McCall of Kilmarnock was the inventor, but his design didn't gain much popularity as the front crank velocipedes did, which were mostly three- or four-wheeled vehicles at that time, and they were easier to operate. Also in 1869, there was a Frenchman named Eugene Meyer who patented the wire-spoke tension wheel for bicycles. Wire-spoke wheels were first proposed decades earlier, back in 1808, in fact, by George Cayley, but that was for a totally different type of vehicle. And this gives me a chance to talk about how wire-spoke wheels work. Oddly enough, it's more complicated than you might imagine. All right, so why would we even have a wire-spoke wheel? What What's the big deal here? It's largely to provide stability to the wheel and connect the rim of the wheel, which is the outer edge, with the hub of the wheel. That's the inner edge, the part that rotates around an axle. The spokes help a wheel support a load, such as a rider on a bike, without collapsing. Now, the wire spokes are just what they sound like. They're spokes made out of thin wire. You'll have a couple of dozen spokes connecting the rim to the hub, and each wire spoke has to be tightened carefully in a process called pretensioning. 
Now, ideally, you want each of the spokes to create the same amount of tension on the hub in the center. They're all pulling the hub, but from different directions and at the same strength. So let's make an analogy to understand what's going on here. Imagine that you are standing in the center of a circle of friends, and each friend is holding a rope, and that rope connects to a sturdy hula hoop that's at your feet. You're standing right in the middle of that hula hoop. At a signal, all of your friends pull on their ropes, and they all exert exactly the same amount of force. The hula hoop will rise up around you, but it won't touch you because everyone is pulling on it from all directions at the same amount of force simultaneously. So that's what a bicycle wheel is doing with the hub. Those spokes are all pulling on the hub simultaneously and with the same amount of force. Now here enters a tricky question. When you place a load on a bicycle wheel, such as, you know, when you get on a bike, uh, so you and your regulators all mount up on bicycles, when you do that, that deforms the wheel slightly. The increased weight causes the bottom of the wheel to flatten out just a little bit. So the question is, does the hub stand on the wire spokes that are below it, as in the ones that lead straight down to where the ground is, or does the hub hang from the spokes that are above it, connecting it to the rim? Now, remember, each of those wires is tightened so that it has tension. Deforming the bottom of the wheel, which means that you're slightly pushing the rim inward, reduces that tension because you are applying a compressive force. If this were a table instead of a bicycle and the spokes were the table legs, we'd say the table legs were experiencing compression and were holding up the table and that the table was standing on its legs. But with wheels, it's not quite so simple. The wire spokes beneath the hub experience compression, but it's not enough to return the wires to their pre-tensioned state. So in other words, the wires below the hub still have tension on them, just not as much as they did before the wheel had to carry a load. Some argue that if the spokes still have tension, which means technically they are still pulling on the hub, they're just not pulling as hard as they were before the compression was applied, they cannot be said to support the hub. So the hub cannot stand on those spokes. You can't stand on something that's pulling downward. It's it because it, standing on re, references like a push. So you can't push if the force is a pull. So these folks argue you'd have to say the hub hangs in place from the spokes around it rather than stands on the spokes below it. Other people argue that this stance doesn't make any sense and that the hub does in fact stand on the wire spokes beneath it. And some of them have used a lot of math and computer simulations to back up their arguments. In some cases, I think you could just say that this is semantics, that one side and the other aren't really arguing opposites, but rather they are working from different perspectives and definitions in an attempt to describe the same thing. I think it is fascinating that something as seemingly simple as a wire spoke bicycle wheel could evoke such a fuss in the first place. And there really is a fuss. If you want to go down a rabbit hole, you can start doing searches on how wire spoke wheels work and see the incredible arguments between people who insist that the hub stands on the spokes or that the spokes hang the hub. Now, 
All we really need to know is that the wheels work and that they made bicycles lighter. That's really important because they're using these thin wires. You didn't have to use massive amounts of materials to build working wheels that reduced that weight of the bicycles and made them more attractive. Because up to this point, you were still talking about bicycles that weighed 50 pounds or more. That was incredibly heavy. Reducing the amount of materials you needed to make your bicycle was an attractive proposition. It brought the cost down. It made them more practical. And so slowly we saw bicycles become lighter, particularly as metallurgical sciences progressed and lighter, stronger metal alloys became available. Meyer's approach led to an interesting trend in design known as the high bicycle or high wheeler, sometimes also known as the ordinary and later on known as the penny farthing. These are those old-timey bikes you've likely seen in photographs or maybe even in person. They feature a much larger front wheel than the rear wheel, sometimes significantly larger. And the pedals are attached directly to the hub of the front wheel. So when you pedal, you're directly rotating that front wheel. Improvements in construction and design meant that you could have a wheel with a 60-inch diameter. That's that's five feet or one and a half meters diameter. Of course, to ride such a bicycle, you'd have to have legs long enough to reach the pedals. So you were limited by the length of your legs, what sort of bicycle you could ride. Uh, but why would you even want a large wheel in the first place? What What was the deal there? Well, that has to do with wheel circumference, rotational speed, and travel speed. So get out your pencils and paper. Let's do some drawing. So first... Draw two circles and make the second circle about twice as big as the first circle. Then in the middle of those two circles, draw a smaller circle in each. That inner circle will represent the wheel hub, and the outer circles will represent the wheel rims. Now, imagine you have pedals attached to each of those hubs. One rotation of the pedals will equal one full rotation of the respective wheels. Let's assume you've matched the revolutions per minute on both wheels. So you're pedaling the same speed on the small wheel as you would on the big wheel. From that perspective, from just the revolutions per minute, you might say you're going the same speed on both wheels. However, the larger wheel will cover more ground in a single rotation than the smaller wheel. So if you took those circles and you straightened them out so that they were just straight lines, the circumference just becomes a straight line, the larger wheel would be a longer line, and that's the amount of space you would cover in one rotation. So rotation speeds are the same, and you're getting maybe, let's say, let's make it simple. We'll say one rotation per second. So 60 rotations per minute. So both wheels turn at 60 rotations a minute, but the larger wheel is going to cover more ground in that space, which means your travel speed using a larger wheel, is faster. So that was why you started seeing penny farthings with these larger and larger wheels in the front. It meant that rich people who had a death wish could ride really, really frickin' fast. So the ordinaries and penny farthings became popular for gentlemen with long legs and a desire to go quite fast and potentially terrify pedestrians. Because we made our own fun back then. One big disadvantage of that design was safety, or rather a lack of. So the rider had to maintain a position high up over the front wheel to pedal properly. You know, you need to be able to see where you're going, you had to be able to balance, and you had to be able to pedal that front wheel. 
The handlebars were typically directly over the hub, and your legs would be snug underneath them. In fact, most handlebars were designed in such a way where there was a little bit of a bulge uh, across the handlebars so that your your legs could move up and down underneath them. But otherwise, it was really close to the wheel. So you're, you're kind of sandwiched in. If you were to hit an obstruction, like a, a rut in the road or a rock or something, you might find yourself flying over the top of the wheel quite high up in such a way that you're nearly guaranteed to land on your head. Those handlebars would prevent you from flying straight off. You would end up following the rotational direction of the wheel and you would face plant in front of your bicycle. And remember, you're potentially more than five feet up because of the size of those wheels. This is where the phrase taking a header came from. The scenario happened frequently enough for there to be a phrase to describe it. And to this day, taking a header means to experience a sharp and sudden decline. Riding these things was really hard. You had to get a running start for one thing, and then you had to jump onto the ordinary, or penny farthing, and hope that you did it correctly. When you came to a stop, you had to jump off again, as there was no way to put your feet down to steady yourself. A famous American author wrote about this experience, that author being Mark Twain, and he summed it up pretty nicely, I think. This is, this is a quote from Mark Twain about riding an ordinary or penny farthing. When you have reached the point in bicycling where you can balance the machine tolerably fairly and propel it and steer it, then comes your next task, how to mount it. You do it in this way. You hop along behind it on your right foot, resting the other on the mounting peg, and grasping the tiller with your hands. At the word, you rise on the peg, stiffen your left leg, hang your other one around in the air in a general and indefinite way, lean your stomach against the rear of the saddle, and then fall off. Maybe on one side, maybe on the other. But you fall off. You get up, and you do it again, and once more, and then several times. By this time, you have learned to keep your balance, and also to steer without wrenching the tiller out by the roots. I say tiller because it is a tiller. Handlebar is a lamely descriptive phrase. So you steer along straight ahead a little while, then you rise forward with a steady strain, bringing your right leg and then your body into the saddle, catch your breath, fetch a violent hitch this way, and then that, and down you go again. Seems pretty accurate to me, Mr. Twain. Well, I've got a lot more to say about the evolution of bicycles, but before I continue, let's take another quick break and thank our sponsor. this time, when we start to see the rise of the ordinary or penny farthing, materials for bicycles were slowly changing as well. Wheels started to switch over to solid rubber wheels. So instead of having iron sheets nailed to a wooden frame, you had solid rubber. That provided a softer ride, though obviously not nearly as soft as the later pneumatic tires would. Ball bearings also became a thing that made wheel rotation along the axle much more smooth, as well as handlebar motions. So these are, are just ball bearings that, that allow for a smoother uh, movement between different elements. Uh, you just have to make sure that the fit is snug without being too tight, because if it's too tight, then you're, the, the balls will just snug up against the edges and it'll prevent any sort of turning at all. But it meant motions in general on the bicycle 
became more elegant and less jerky and, and violent and difficult to control. Oh, and you might wonder why these things were called penny farthings. Well, in England at the time, a penny coin measured either 34 millimeters or 31 millimeters in diameter. That would depend on whether it was an old copper, copper penny before 1860 or a bronze penny when they switched over. Farthings, which were worth one quarter of a penny, as in one fourth of a penny, were 22 millimeters in diameter if they were made of copper, or 20 millimeters if they were made of bronze. So the ordinary's wheels were similarly of different sizes. You had the larger penny and the smaller farthing. Well, that was kind of like the larger front wheel and the smaller rear wheel. Uh, while rich men were causing themselves head trauma on penny farthings, groundbreaking work was underway in France. As far back as 1868, a French watchmaker named André Goulemet came up with an alternative to the front wheel pedal mounts of the ordinary bicycles. His design used a chain drive. And in fact, we didn't even learn about his contributions to this. Uh, in fact, you could argue that they weren't contributions at all because it was pretty much kept to himself. When one of his relatives discovered one of Goulomet's old bikes in storage after Goulomet himself had passed away. Uh, the simple chain drive, by the way, consists of pedals mounted to a crank. Uh, the crank is got a gear wheel, typically called the chain wheel, mounted to it. So when you pedal, you turn the crank, and the crank in turn is, since it's mounted to this chain wheel, turns the chain wheel. Uh, the teeth of this chain wheel fit into links on a bike chain. The chain is in a loop, and the other end of that loop is mounted around a second gear wheel, this one is connected to the hub, typically of the rear bicycle wheel, although there were front wheel chain drives as well uh, in sort of a hybrid of this style and penny farthings. So if you push on the pedals, you would turn this chain wheel that would end up uh, engaging the teeth into the bicycle chain, rotating the chain loop anyway, and then that would, again, transfer rotational motion to the back gear wheel, which would, in turn, turn the that wheel, the freely turning rear wheel most of the time. So the ratio of gear teeth between the rear wheel's gear wheel and the chain wheel would determine how fast you would go per rotation of the pedals. So let's take a standard bike wheel so that I can explain how chain drives work. It makes it easier if we just work with a easily understandable standard. A uh, typical bike wheel might be 26 inches in diameter. So if we take the good old handy formula, we can figure out that the circumference of this wheel is 81.7 inches or so, meaning that if we were to take the wheel and lay it out flat, you know, un unwheel it, in other words, it would lay out to a length of 81.7 inches. One full rotation of the wheel would take you that far. But how much pedaling is required to make one rotation? That would depend upon the gear ratio. So let's say that the chain wheel, you know, the one that attaches to the crank that is attached to the pedals, has 22 teeth. And the rear wheel's gear has 30 teeth. That gives us a 22 to 30 ratio. Also a, you could, you know, argue it down to a 0.73 to 1 ratio. Which means if you were to do a full pedal stroke on the chain wheel, one full rotation, 
the rear wheel would only turn 0.73 times, so not quite three quarters of a rotation. But if the ratio were different, let's say the chain wheel has 44 teeth and the rear wheel has 11 teeth on its gear, you'd see a lot more turning in that rear wheel per turn of the crank. That would give us a 4 to 1 ratio, which means every time the crank wheel turns once, the rear wheel will go around four times. So if you tried out two bikes with the gear ratios I just mentioned, and you were pedaling those two bikes at exactly the same rate, you get on one and you pedal it where you're, again, going maybe 60 uh, revolutions per minute, and then you get on the other one and you do it 60 revolutions per minute. On the first bike, you'll find yourself ambling along at a leisurely pace. And on the second bike, you'll find yourself zooming down at ridiculous speeds. The gear ratios are what allowed bicycle manufacturers to create chain-driven bikes that could attain speeds of the high wheelers without all those drawbacks. Remember, the high wheelers, the reason they kept getting taller and taller was that the taller wheels would allow people to go faster as long as their legs were long enough to pedal the pedals. Using gear ratios with chain drives would allow the same thing, although it would take quite some time to get there. And it would take even longer to get to bicycles that would have multiple gears and not just a single gear. Now, Goulomay didn't really do anything with that bike design, like I said. It just kind of sat in his workshop. And it would take a few decades for others to kind of pick up this particular approach. It wasn't until the mid-1880s, well into the mid-1890s, that you started seeing chain-driven bikes emerge and get some popularity. Some of them actually used chain-driven front wheels, like I mentioned, and they still had a larger wheel in the front as well, penny-farthing style. But a British engineer and entrepreneur named John Kemp Starley changed things with a bicycle called the Rover 2. John Kemp Starley was the nephew of John Starley. Uh, John Starley was a successful businessman who had started off with uh, sewing machines, really, and had moved on to making ordinaries or penny farthings and did quite well with them. So his nephew, J.K. Starley, picked up the mantle and his first bicycle was known as the Rover and it featured a chain drive. It also had a larger front wheel, so still kind of penny farthing-ish. Uh, but because his design didn't require the rider to perch at the top of a precariously high wheel it became known as a new type of bicycle. Instead of it being a velocipede or a penny farthing or an ordinary or a bone shaker, these became known as safety bicycles. That classification would be used for chain bikes for years. So the bicycle that you and I are familiar with is really an outgrowth of these safety bicycles from the late 19th century. The Rover 2 was different uh, it had two wheels that were more or less of equivalent size. So no longer did we have that larger front wheel. It also had a frame that looks a lot like the typical diamond-shaped frame you'll see in modern bikes. Although it lacked a few things, like the seat tube that modern bikes have. So a frame on a modern bike has a tube inside which you can fit a pipe where the bike seat is mounted, and you can typically adjust the height of the seat. That was not a feature of the Rover 2. But if you take a look at a picture of a Rover 2, you'll see the unmistakable features of a modern bicycle. The fact that these style bikes were called safety bicycles might have hurt sales a little bit. They actually did have other names too that also seemed diminutive, like 
In France, they were known as bicyclettes, like little bicycle, essentially, is what that means. And some people interpret this as meaning the vehicles weren't meant for big old rugged manly men who had better things to do than avoid having their brains smashed in whenever they hit a small rut in the road. Around the same time, other engineering advances brought about features like caliper brakes, which made it easier to control bicycles, and pneumatically inflated tires helped smooth out the ride and made bicycling more comfortable as well as safe. The pneumatic tire was originally meant to help a young boy have a smoother ride on a tricycle. The inventor of the pneumatic tire was a Scottish veterinarian named John Boyd Dunlop. He had a son who was in poor health, and Dunlop wanted to help his boy be able to play. And so he invented the pneumatic tire in order to help his son have a good time on his tricycle. And that would go on to change bicycling and later on the car industry. In fact, a lot of the advancements made during this era with bicycles would carry over into the automotive industry. By the late 1890s, mass production had become a thing, and that meant that bicycles could be made in greater numbers, which brought down their cost, and it made them more easily accessible to a larger customer base. At the same time, there were changes in the way women were allowed to dress. I hate having to use that phrase that way, but that's how things were back then. And so there were also changes in bicycle design that were catering so, to women so that they too could ride bicycles, because up to that point, the design of bicycles was such that women were unable to ride them while also uh, committing to the social mores of how they should dress in polite society. Women would typically ride uh, larger three-wheeled vehicles that were similar to the penny farthing in design, but didn't require you to sit astride an enormous bicycle, which, as it turns out, is hard to do if you also have to wear an ankle-length dress. I think this is a pretty good place to wrap up this episode. There's a whole lot more we could talk about, even in the evolution of the bicycle. And then, of course, there's more to talk about with the future developments, things like gear switching bikes, uh, the uh, the first appearance of the Fixie, and then the return of the Fixie, the evolution of materials like carbon fiber, and a lot more. So maybe I'll do a follow-up episode in the future where I touch on those. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, you can get in touch with me. My email address for this show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. Remember, I stream live on Wednesdays and Fridays over at twitch.tv slash techstuff. Hope to see you over there and join me in the chat room. Also, don't forget to follow our Instagram account. And I think that's it. I'm done. I'm going to go uh, go for a bike ride. I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 